0: the world is changing out from underneath us and if we do nothing it's going to get worse we can see it we can breathe it we can smell it and we know it's true this is just reality and so this is work that needs to be done so that tomorrow and the world we leave for our
1: kids right is like better rather than worse i recently spoke to somebody on the podcast who's developing technology that allows us to actually have a conversation with trees but we're going to need to do more than that we're going to need to as it were understand the forest from the trees. How each of those individual parts combines to form this beautiful, harmonious symphony that is a forest. And what happens when that starts breaking down? Welcome to Who's Saving the Planet. My name is Lex Faber. On today's podcast, we talked to Justin Daw. Justin is the CEO and founder of Earthforce, and Earthforce is creating technology that synthesizes forests at scale, acres, tens of acres, hundreds of acres, even thousands of acres at a time. He is a serial entrepreneur, and he is also a native Hawaiian, somebody who was born and raised there. So in light of the fires that we all witnessed in Hawaii, we started the conversation with Justin about how he's doing and how the island's doing and then how the technology he's building can help us better understand the ecology of forests to prevent those types of fires in the future. Here's what Justin had to say.
0: For decades now it's been very clear that Hawaiian ecosystems like coral reefs and things like that were under like really acute distress and threatened by climate change. And so I've spent the last, you know, twenty plus years working in sustainability in different parts of the the effort. And to see the fires in Hawaii right now. It's, you know, it really kind of comes full circle. Um, I live on the mainland now in, in California where kind of forest fires are much more the the norm here than that type of grassland fire. Anyway, it's it's a horrible, horrible time over there right now. I have family still in Maui, just a few miles from the fires that are hosting uh refugees from from the disaster there. And so, you know, thankfully, um, my family and friends were were fine. Um, I certainly won't speak for the whole community there, but it's it's obviously a, a huge tragedy.
1: What can people do to help? And we can we'll put links in well in the in the show notes as well. But is there anything specific from from what you've known from people talking on the ground that that can be helpful for uh, the broader community? I don't have any great insights there for like the immediate response, disaster yeah.
0: response. You know, there's the responders doing everything they can and all of the. GoFundMes and the
1: usual kind of like Red Cross donations and things like that are, are huge. We'll put some links in the show notes with um, reputable charities that people can donate to if they feel so, uh, if they if they have that generosity within them. But I think then let's move on to that bigger picture because Earth Force, it's so unfortunately habitual for us to be talking about whatever the most recent climate-induced tragedy is. Floods, hurricanes, forest fires droughts, heat shields, winter freezes, you name it, right? There's the whole whole world. Mother Earth is pissed for good reason. And so you are building a company that directly provides both insight and then solutions to some of these most dangerous aspects, specifically forest fires. So let's just dig in right there. How will your company help us prevent things like this in the future? It, it kind of comes down to You know, as always, there's like a
0: history that's involved here. And and then also when we're thinking about the future, like there's a path forward. And basically what we do with Earth Force is we're set out to do a very simple thing, which is to make it possible to um, restore forests at scale. And and that sounds it's very simple to say, but like what does it mean? But when you look at kind of what the tools are and what the options are today for working in the forest, people unfortunately have a very limited menu to choose from. So On the one hand, you have really scalable, (laughs) destructive things like clear cutting, which is intentional for producing timber typically, right? Or wildfire, which is also extremely at scale um, right now and is obviously destructive uh, when it's this type of intensity of wildfire. And then there's the restorative work that people do, but it's unfortunately super artisanal is how I would describe it, which is to say people go out and you like have well-trained foresters uh in forestry technicians, go mark every single tree. Should we cut this one or not? And kind of go through and, and do this like tree by tree, acre by acre process of determining what the work should look like. But the challenge is that so when you have millions and millions of acres of work to do, you can't get there from here. And if you try to throw people at it, you actually become less and less productive because the next person to go out has less experience than the last person who is already working. So like in all of these you know, we have like this broad category of things, which is like nature-based solutions, but we don't have them in a scalable, increasingly efficient manner to uh, to deal with the scale of the challenge we're facing. So what Earth forest is building is tools for doing that type of restoration work at scale. And so we, we make basically like um, sensor tools that can look at the forest and take a prescription from a forester. You know, a forester says, hey, we need to go from this many trees per acre to this many trees per acre or we need to like prioritize saving trees of this size and of these species and and based on that prescription we can then take like sort of aerial data satellite data and put it on the ground because the real challenge is not mapping the forests like they're not moving they're not changing quickly typically but getting it to the people on the ground going to do the work like under the, under the forest canopy, it's really hard to know where you are and what you're looking at. <clears throat> and so our tools basically, in real time, evaluate the forest around you and let the people working in the forest know what to do. And that can work. That becomes, you know, that's machine learning driven and it becomes better and better over time. And it, it lets people move at whatever scale they want because we know how to do work at scale in the forest, but not when it needs to be selective. And, and so that's really what we've, what we've built as a way to do this kind of selective, um, constructive resilience, building work in the forest at whatever scale
1: is needed. As somebody who has, uh, an amateur and that's being generous understanding of forestry, um, can you break that down in some sort of like some, some sort of tangible real world things, right? So like, it, It it seems like we are still working in a very analog world when it comes to the practice of forestry, where there's a lot of knowledge, but there's not a lot of technology applied to that knowledge. And this is bridging the gap. How could we see that type of um, technology deployed in a way that will be able to really tangibly reduce either the effect of these forest fires or to avoid them altogether? So I guess one thing to put out there, and it's, it's an important thing, right, is like
0: fire in the forest is, is part of the game. It's natural and it's typically healthy. What we're dealing with here is like a giant accumulated debt, if you will, that's been then compounded by climate change. And so, you know, if you go back forests in California, a decent rule of thumb is that like a healthy, mature forest in California, uh, kind of pre-white settlement. Had like 40, maybe 50 trees per acre, big, healthy, fire-resilient trees. And, you know, when fires came along, they were kind of ground fires that would take out the undergrowth. Well, then folks came through, clear-cut this kind of economic resource, the these large trees. And then what grew back was smaller, younger trees and a lot of them. And then kind of the tides changed culturally. And so fire suppression really became. Kind of the name of the game. And logging was cut, you know, in California in the last 30 years has fallen by about 90%. And so you've got basically forests that now have two or 300 trees per acre instead of some dozens of trees per acre. And they're smaller trees. They're much less fire resistant. They're all competing with each other. Many of them are sick from different invasive pests and then throw in climate change and drought and heat and all of this. And when you do get a fire, there's nothing you can do about it. And and you get these fires, you know, the of the 20 biggest fires in California's history, almost all of them have been in the past decade. You know, so it's just it's a it's a crisis and it's an unnatural crisis that's the result of past past actions. And so what we need to do is help the forest get back to that kind of a mature format. Right. Uh, fewer trees per acre, bigger, healthier trees, not all eating for limited uh, resources in the same way. And that's going to look different in different places, but that's the essential game is like, we, we need to take out a lot of these smaller trees that are unhealthy and that make fires when they do happen, extremely intense and damaging, both for social reasons as well as for the forest health itself.
1: So excuse again, my layperson here, but like, I got to imagine that's a function of time. Like Trees growing to a large girth or circumference Earth. requires time, and there's not necessarily something that we can do as a forcing function to increase the size of the trees and the number of trees in a, in a specific plot of land. So uh, how do we find our way around that? But yeah. Speaking frankly, like uh, if we're a little screwed in this situation that we've developed for ourselves, but for an, uh, an era long sort of cleansing. How do we, how do we prepare? How do we bet? How do we return to a situation of more stability?
0: Well, you know, it's, it's a great question. And like, this is the whole thing of like, how do you stay optimistic in a, in the face of such a catastrophe and just sort of every year repeatedly. And now it's like, what's top of the news, the Canadian fires or the Maori fires, right? Like totally.
1: It doesn't matter where you are, right? Like I'm in the Northeast, you're in California and there's people in the middle of the country in any country, wherever you you are, there is, this is affecting you.
0: You name it. So, so the way that, the way that I think about it is, is I, I find myself using the term jujitsu a lot these days, which is like, how do we take these challenges and reframe them as part of the opportunity? You know what? There's a lot of work to do. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Right. So let's say there's a lot of work to do. Okay there's some opportunity in in work that needs to be done. There's millions of acres of this. There's billions, you know, there's literally billions of trees. Okay. Well, there's a, that's a resource, right? That's a, that's a thing that we can make something out of. Like down the street from me here, um, I, I live in the Bay area. There's a 16, 16 or 18 story high rise building being built right now out of low grade wood products that have been engineered to be like, have the structural properties you need to build a 16 or whatever it is, 18 story building out of wood with literally hundreds of homes coming online from wood products that 50 years ago, people would have just left in a pile on the forest floor when they were taking out the big trees. So like that, you know, people are smart. We should be creative. We should be innovative and we should put this resource to use so it doesn't just go up in smoke because that's the most damaging form. Like here's a little incredible, incredible factoid for you. So I just saw yesterday that the accounting, the accounting <clears throat> on the Canadian wildfires is that almost 400 million tons of greenhouse gases have been emitted already this year and this fire season is like far from over. That, that is more than all of the gains we've gotten from all wind and solar power, like all renewable energy in the U.S. this year, like in a year, like mm-hmm. Like energy, clean energy is moving forward. It's people are investing billions, if not trillions of dollars in it. Same with, with electric mobility. And then nature is going backwards and it's going backwards faster than we can go forward on these other fronts. And so like, Mm -hmm. this is, this is a thing that we have to do because it's not even just like, like these are really bad tons. These aren't even just like normal tons of emissions. Like if a ton comes from your house burning down, I guarantee you that's a ton you would really, really rather have avoided than a ton from some random chemical plant or something, right?
1: <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. Why why is that? I would have thought a random chemical plant would have been worse. No, the ton the ton that comes from your house burning down, I think is a worse ton. Let's
0: why? You know, why is it worse? Because it yeah. was your house.
1: <laughs> oh well yeah on a personal level. Yeah, okay. Okay. I thought you meant sort of like it's like actually No, once a worse it's, ton once of it's in your hair, carbon carbon it's carbon. All the air yeah, it's Yeah, okay okay right yeah, no, no yes mean, yes yes yes. You see what I'm getting at. Of course, of course. No, yes. the The personal cost of this, um, th- that tragedy cannot be cannot be calculated. It's, there's no simple uh, CO2 cottage to approximate that. I think it's an important thing that you say, and I think about this often. One of my one of my very best friends in the whole world is an obnoxiously smart doctor and uh, New Yorker reporter. And I often ask him sort of like, are you feeling optimistic or not optimistic about the world? Because he, he touches lots of things. And I tend to fall more on the side where you are, where it's like with these great challenges comes this fantastic opportunity to revisit some of our long-held consumption assumptions and start to challenge them and start to say, well, how can we think about the world differently? And with that, there's economic opportunity, there's social opportunity, there's of course, tremendous, tremendous challenges in the way of that. Uh, When we're thinking about your business specifically, I think it's an interesting use case for that mentality or that that sort of idea, right? Where this is a monetization opportunity that didn't necessarily need to exist in the past and is now such a driving force of decisions that are being made at a macroeconomic scale. For instance, in California, insuring homes is getting incredibly expensive to do. And that is largely because they are built in places that are susceptible to fire. And so this opens up a whole new scale of how The collision of capitalism and ecologically or environmental stability is both opening up new channels for opportunities for innovation and also closing off places where the traditional means of doing business was something that was operable. This is a really long-winded question here, but I guess I'm just le- teeing you up to say, like, you're stepping into this place, right? Where it's like, this isn't exactly like you're challenging an incumbent business, and it's not exactly like you're creating a new category either. It's something in the middle. How do you see that as a place of bringing together this idea of a good economic opportunity with one that can actually help us live in a more sustainable way? It's a great question, as you said, is it? And I, I'll try. I'm not going to be able to give a short answer. Um, here's, well, I didn't give a short question, so I think future. it's only fair. Here's a way <laughs> to not... think about
0: it. So, like, part of the reason people listen to this podcast, right, is like they're trying to figure out how to help. And I've been fortunate enough to have an over 20 year career in sustainability. I spent 15 years in clean energy, from back when it was nothing to when it felt like, geez, this is a giant snowball rolling downhill. The economics are great; it's attracting talent and capital, literally. Renewable energy installations are up by a factor of a thousand in the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep doing it. But basically, that snowball is rolling downhill. And you look at something like transportation, right? In the past 10 years, the number of EVs sold per year is up by a factor of 100. It needs to grow like another 10x, which it'll be all vehicles. And then you need to run it for like 20 years to replace everything that ages out. But like that snowball is also rolling pretty fast and catching up, if not passing the energy one, which is great. But there's this other giant wedge, which is nature, and it's going backwards faster than we can get those other ones going forward. And so Mm -hmm. in my personal search, I'm always trying to be in that beginning stage of like trying to get the snowball started. And there are other people whose talents and abilities or life circumstances or whatever lead them to be part of that growth phase and like accelerate the one that's already rolling. That's great. That's where most of the money is. But in this early stage, right, like some, you you need to do, you need to do a bunch of creative things to get the thing started. And, and I have a really simple, like ridiculously simple framework for thinking about this, which is like basically all goods and services are some combination of energy, materials and information that's like all there is right and like and right now we've done a great job of changing the energy piece to be clean and infinitely scale nearly infinitely scalable and getting cheaper the more we do of it and the materials is a big challenge and but we also have so we have energy and we have information processing which has become almost free and massively scalable so how can we use the energy and the information to deal with the materials challenges because that's what we're facing is a giant materials question, like about mm-hmm. the physical world around us. That's what's breaking. And so this one of working with forests, working with on sort of material supply for housing, like that's that's where Earth Force comes from, is this desire to like work on this wedge that's getting worse is not getting better and is part of the really challenging thing. And personally for myself, I'm like a middle-aged guy with with kids. I want to work with living systems right now. That's where the force mm-hmm. comes from. Like it might be that working on chemicals or cement or something is the thing to do. But like after working on EVs and power plants, I just want to spend a you know, this this kind of like final big chapter of my professional life working on living systems and making them better. So like, you know, forests are an amazing thing to get to work on. I feel super fortunate. And and it's a big, big climate challenge as well.
1: I like, I very much like that idea of, um, energy materials and information. And, and I would humbly offer a a fourth to that, which would be labor. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. That's, that's the, that's the honorary fourth member for sure. (laughs) Um, but I think that's a good point where if you break things down in terms of that, there's also the, the aspect of, of, I I would say, I don't know, a fifth bucket of just like how much is unknown and, and like you said, when you're putting widgets together, there's a, there's a degree of being able to control variables. Like I spoke to somebody recently that's building EV batteries using AI in virtual spaces to better understand all the ways that you can combine all those materials and chemicals together to optimize the battery. I'm like, yeah. that's super cool, cool. But it's also like kind of a closed system, right? Where you're building this battery, you can sort of test it in this theoretical aspect, based depending on the use case, and get pretty good approximation of how that's going to perform. When you're working with something as complicated as a forest that has so many variables that are unknown to us, frankly, as as people, you know, we've we've got some idea of how this ecosystem works, but we certainly cannot possibly assume to know all of the different ways those different roles into play. And yep. then also, there's the variable element of of weather. Right of like small scale weather, in addition to large scale climate, where yep. where there's that you know, <laughs> what is it like? Um, like God laughs when you make a plan, or uh, sure. the Mike Tyson version of like everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face. Whatever your flavor of that sort of maxim is, where you know, like yep. you have that kind of uncertainty that's coming after you. And I I think perhaps what you're alluding to, which I definitely in my previous life as a sommelier, where I was dealing with the creation of wine, there's this aspect of needing to give yourself over to the natural world, where like there yeah. is a very clear water's edge of what you can do, and the rest of it is being governed by uh, some greater force. You know, some sort of like definitely. Well, not to be too on the nose, but earth force,
0: massive, massive complexity, and that's you know yeah. that's the same, as you said, earth force, right? Like, like yeah, this, this question of like. Is nature, are we going to treat nature like an ally to work cooperatively with, given all of the complexities that, you know, anybody who's in a relationship knows, like some, just because somebody's on your side, doesn't mean it's simple. Or mm-hmm. is it like more of this like extractive, combative, zero-sum kind of approach? And I'll, again, just kind of using some numbers here, think about, so Canada, let's think, you know, talk about Canada a little bit, having a horrible, horrible wildfire season. They produce, you know, Canada is like the leading log uh, producer and exporter out there, like, you know, much, much more than like the U S at this point, let's say Mm. that adds up to about $16 billion of saw logs every year being produced, mostly from forest. That's never been cut before. Right. And that's one box. That's a, that's a really simple accounting box. People do PhDs and live within that simple accounting box. So it's obviously like a whole complex thing and competition does its thing and people have to compete and you you name it. It's not a, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but fundamentally that's like one box we're going to go cut trees in a way that lets us profitably produce logs, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then there's this other box, totally different accounting system, which is wildfire. The fires in California when we had a bad year a few years ago, right? was about $50 billion of economic damage. I'm sure that the the numbers aren't in it from Canada's fires, but it'll be in the tens, if not over $100 billion of damage. And it's treated as a totally separate box in that $16 billion of saw logs. And so you have on the one hand, the commercial industry, which is, as they say, fiber constrained, meaning they wish they could cut more, but they're not allowed to. And then you have this other thing, which is, hey, we don't have the horsepower or the budget to go protect the communities that are at risk and to deal with these forests that are under massive stress. And it's like, well, if we can manage information, we can try to bring those two boxes together because I guarantee you, I guarantee you there's an outcome where there can be more fiber production, more jobs for people working in the forest and lower risk and healthier forest. And so that's not to say that like we can all see into like the infinite complexity of nature. But that is to say that like, we can do a lot better than having these two separate boxes of accounting that don't speak to each
1: other. So the, that connective tissue, to think that it is just a lack of information, I think, is to overestimate uh, humans' willingness to appropriately analyze and then apply information. I appreciate your optimism there, but if that was the only problem, we'd be a lot farther along than we are now. So there's clearly some other aspects that are... Competing for the attention of just that information. We are not governed by scientists, for better or worse. What is it? And how do you hope to bridge that gap further than just applying good information? Totally. So the the mindset I bring and have brought for 20
0: plus years now is what I call market transformation. And market transformation like, is to say that this is how we do things as a society, on a, on the largest scale is, is through markets. And those markets have rules and governance and, you know, regulatory side, and they have capital movements and they have, you know, end customers who are pulling on the thing and, and all of that. And you need a workforce and like, how do you transform a market? How do you transform the energy market? How do you transform transportation? There's going to be a hundred different variables on supply and demand and regulation and all of this and bill, you name it. And you know what? market transformation coming to natural resource management, to forestry, to, to landscapes that will involve all of those things as well. And so we're trying to be part of the information toolkit that, that lets the menu get longer than cut everything or neglect it. That's the menu today. The menu today is cut everything or neglect it. And we can obviously do much, much better than that. Like forestry, if you think of forestry as a practice, like what should we cut? What should we not cut? what should we plant, right? How much? and you think about that in a steady state climate world versus in a climate changing world with invasive pests and all these other kind of exacerbating factors like climate and forestry combining what you plant, what you cut, when, how much, where all of those questions and answers are different in a climate changing world and and so, the, just the, the the need to bring information in and, and have a longer, um, more sophisticated menu than cut everything or just neglect it. Like, it's just the game. That's the game we're all in.
1: I think, so if that's sort of the... Once you get people to the table and you say, here, this is a dynamic menu of things you can do, there's a preceding step to that, which is getting people to the table saying, you are incentivized to change your actions and to rethink whatever the status quo is. Or to incorporate something broader than a strict profit maximization calculus that has worked for the last 15 years, right? So like, that's where I think there's this really interesting opportunity to, to translate, as you were saying, some of the pain that is felt from these different economic sectors, some of the pain that is being wrought with home values, insurance, prices, taxes, all of those types of things and apply it to saying, well, if we make different decisions, this will have downstream effects on what what is always the driving force for most politics, which is like your wallet, whether that's on a personal level or a local level or a state level. That's what people respond to. It's just so hard. It's so hard for people to to, no, like seriously, there's this, <clears throat> I think about it in like,
0: but that's, that's, that's the cards we're dealt, you know, like the, you know,
1: that's the grand challenge. Welcome. This reminds me of like water, water resource management as sort of like, you know, if you live in a place of raw water scarcity, like that doesn't go away. But how do you convince people that like, we have to stop building in Phoenix and it's like, well, maybe we need to stop building houses in Malibu. Like there's this, I don't know. I feel like there's, there's that end on it. And then there's this human idea of expansionism where our species is designed to reproduce and absorb natural resources as quickly and efficiently as we can. This isn't a question. I'm just like, I don't know how to get out of this. box.
0: It's totally it, What you're saying is true. And you know, it's just kind of now. So what are you going to do about it? Right. And so like, yeah, again, my, my take is like, we have I think somebody, I think it's a hugely underreported story. I think people are going to look back in 50 years, a hundred years and be like, wow, humanity went from like energy being a, a limited, expensive, scarce thing to like having as much, as much of it as you like, look back over, like an electron today is like three cents and it used to be like 10. What else has gone down in price?
1: Yeah. TVs. Like,
0: <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so things, things were basically like you can use information to then like get economies of scale going and learning going, right? And so that's what we need to do here as well. So here's an example of how you prime the pump and get some things going. Early in my career, one of my proudest career achievements was working in Colorado on what was co- what came to be called Amendment 37. It was a ballot measure, a public vote to create a minimum what they call it, an RPS, Renewable Portfolio Standard, which is total jargon, but basically means at least a certain percentage of the electricity sold in the state needs to be cleaned by date certain. And we set a low bar and it was the first time anywhere in the country there'd been a public vote. Do we want this? There were other states mm-hmm. that had done it through the legislature, but not that many. And we went to the public and we said this, we want to set a target requirement. We're going to put a cost cap. It won't cost the average. If it's going to cost more than 25 cents a month per household, then then it gets gets, gets put on hold. So it was like very, very non-ambitious. And yet we took it to to the public and the public voted on it. And said yes and since then because it was a political winner they've upped it and it's now like 80 or hundred percent it was like it's gone it's gone you know it's snowballed right so that 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 kind of thing and you know production tax credits and things that like got sort of helped create some gravity to get that snowball going were important that was almost 20 years ago i was auctioning in fact 20 years ago now mm-hmm. that was 2003 2004 so like similarly here you know, is, is every, is, is a, is a board, a board, a board, I don't know, a board that was harvested in a way that reduced fire risk. Seems like maybe we want to advantage it relative to a board that was cut from virgin forest, you know, just, just throwing an idea out there, you know, so like there's, there's things we can do where we can say, you know what, these commodities are not all the same and we can't, treat them the same. We need to build some information into them. Right.
1: The, I've I've been beating this drum for a long time, which is a very very personal drum. But I always think about these things. There's five main. There's five main places that we can push. You have top down market forces, which is big money. You have bottom up market forces, which is consumer spend and things of that nature. You have technology you have social movements and then you have politics and all five of these things work in concert with one another. And if we get all of them moving in the same direction, then they'll start to develop some kind of synergistic relationship that allows us to unlock each one of them individually. And the sum is greater than parts of what have you. And from yours, what I'm like, I think there's just an interesting sort of, as you put it, like supply demand function, where what is the demand for this type of information? Obviously there's very little supply for it. And if you can step in there, that's fantastic. But the demand is something that's relatively nascent because I don't think that people even largely realize that it's missing from an informational aspect. And I'm talking specifically now around what Earthforce does, which is better understand forest management by applying technology to it. It's just not, like you said, it wasn't on the menu. And once it's on the menu, if you can tie that to, well, here's how you lose less money this is how your insurance prices go down this is how we die less as a people every (laughs) year like i think that's a very powerful thing and i don't know I'm, i'm just very curious to follow the trajectory of you guys as you continue this because what i know for sure which is tragic is that this problem is not going to go away and if anything is going to get worse
0: Yeah, uh, here, let me give you some good news because nobody wants to be depressed. So like as a company, you know, we need to go through these orders of magnitude growth that like clean energy has gone through. I'll just tell you that in the past 18 months, we've gone from working on 50 acre projects to then 500 acre projects to 5,000 acre projects. And right now we are very urgently getting our hands around a few 50,000 acre projects. So that's like, you know, three orders of magnitude in the course of a year year and a half here yeah and that's and that and that's roughly the scale you know 50 hundred thousand acre chunks is a scale where you do a few hundred of those and it starts to add up so there's this is a doable thing but it is exactly as complex as you are describing and and yet it's just what needs to be done because you look around and the option like the default the do nothing is not a healthy case and so I had, I had an investor once tell me a really smart thing, um, which doesn't happen all the time, but it was, it was um, like, it was like, you know, people care a lot about being able to maintain the status quo and with these, with these disasters, if what you're really selling is the ability for tomorrow to not be worse than today, that's a powerful thing. And that's what we're working on, right? It is like the world is changing out from underneath us. And if we do nothing, it's going to get worse and we can all, we can all see it, we can breathe it, we can smell it and we know it's true. This is just reality. And so this is work that needs to be done so that tomorrow and the world we leave for our kids, right, is like better
1: rather than worse. Yes. Yes to all of that. Absolutely. And we're not above throwing shade on investors on this particular <laughs> podcast, but it's always nice when they hear, when they add value. Yeah. Um, Did you set out to build a billion dollar company when you started Earthforce? Strangely, yes. And there's an asterisk,
0: which is to say that like, I think mostly in terms of acres and megatons, um, like we need, we need to be working on millions of acres. And I think that if we're working on millions of acres and adding value, we'll make a plenty valuable company. So that's, that's where like, high quality employees come from, that's where partners come from. That's where opportunities come from, is much more that um it's funny because in the world of fundraising, you want to talk about the billions of dollars, but actually most of the resources you need uh come from the mission. And and the mission is spoken of in terms of like homes protected and acres protected and and uh and trees and forests.
1: Well it's gotta be both, right? I think this is the thing that of the things that come up all the time. One is uh you must work within the system that you are trying to change in order to affect the maximal amount of change and so if you are if you don't have an end that says here this is how i've given you so much money back compared to i've i've taken your pile of money and i've grown it it's much harder to expand quickly and what we need is speed when we're talking about climate mitigation strategies and so there needs to be this dual argument necessarily, right? It's a purist argument on either end is going to be useless. It needs to bridge that gap pretty effectively. And so, but there's always this internal conflict, right? The CEOs I talk to are like, I don't. I didn't get into this for that. I got into it for the moralistic reason. It's not a conflict. I mean, I, I'm right with you. Like, you know, I care a lot
0: about markets. Like, my master's degree is in what they call engineering economic systems. Like, what the heck? It's like mathematical modeling with dollar signs. Yeah. So, like, I get it. Like, if a thing isn't profitable, you're not going to end up doing a lot of it over time. You know? Right. So those, the most sustainable businesses, so to speak, obviously are profitable ones. So, the, but I think there's also a change in the air, right? Which is that in the in the startup world, a lot of the like, my company is worth a billion dollars. We've never turned a profit, but the investors believe that there's going to be like a greater fool to invest after them or after an IPO or something. I think that a lot of that's also yeah being burned away in a helpful way. And so like, you know, people talk instead of like a unicorn, maybe like in climate, we need to build a lot, you know, we need to find a lot of like, Draft horses, you know, yeah. and I. What we're doing, we're we're. There's a lot of moats to what we do. There's a lot of value. We can be a high value, profitable, sustainable company while doing some really great work for the environment and for society. So um, I'm less worried about like the Silicon Valley unicorn hype game. I'm much more interested in like a company that is creating real value. Um, yeah, both financially as well as as socially.
1: I totally agree with you, but I'm trying to give a little bit of like room here for, and not just for you, but for people in general. And I'm also speaking to myself when I say this a little bit. So this is a little self-talk of like not Of being able to do both without it feeling necessarily as a conflict or hypocrisy, to be able to walk into an investor meeting and put on your hat of saying, this is why I need your money so that I can give you more back. And being able to talk to your employees and your investors the same and say, this is the mission of what we are doing and the purpose for what we are doing. And that those things don't necessarily need to be in conflict with the massive planet size caveat that capitalism got us into this mess in a large part and relying on it to get it out of us is, is to get get us out of it is also inherently fraught, but I don't know another way to do it. Right. Like if we can take capitalism and turn it, we're going to be in violent,
0: inevitably we're in violent agreement here. Right. But like, but like there, there are big waves and it's worth just as entrepreneurs or as people trying to make change in the world, it's worth keeping perspective on where you are on that wave. I will tell you 20 years ago, when I started doing climate positive entrepreneurship, that was not really a thing. Right. And, and and right now, if you go talk to investors and you're like, Hey, I've got a really good company here that we're building and it's climate positive. That's only, that's only a positive right there before they had been like, wait, is this a do-goodery thing? Should you be a nonprofit? Like, you know, there's a whole, right. right. And this arc right now, like, sure, there needs to be, there needs to be a ton of capital, but there is a ton of capital. There probably needs to be like five tons of capital, but like, there's a ton of capital that's interested in climate right now. So, um, it's not a challenge like it was 20 years ago. It's in a really, it's in a really good spot. Um, and I don't think that there's that many people who see this as like fundamentally in conflict. So, you know, the days when like to do something effective in climate, you had to like, you know, this was my life experience was like make $20,000 a year and sleep on couches and go get the neighbors organized. You know, that's, that's still a role to be played, but there's definitely, definitely. And very obviously a role for like changing the infrastructure and the material and commodity flows of our world, um, how things built and all of that.
1: Yeah. Now that web three died a spectacular and then quiet death. We can all focus on things that are a little bit more pertinent. Like, climate change and AI and things that are probably a little bit more enduring. Um, Okay, Justin, uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on board. Your perspective is fantastic. The company that you're building uh, is going to be, if not is already very important. And so please do keep in touch. Love to hear about the trajectory and where you're going and of course anything we can do to help out. Yeah, thanks Lex. I appreciate the opportunity and um, hopefully be back down the road. As I said, there's more information on resources to make charitable donations for the communities that were affected by the fires in Hawaii in our podcast show notes. So please go check that out. One of my favorite things about this podcast is being able to talk to the people who are building the solutions that don't exist today, but tomorrow are going to be the reason that we can better prevent Fires that ravage those communities in Hawaii and, and better understand the world in which we're living. And so I really appreciate Justin's time here today. Tune in next week for another story of somebody who is working to save the planet. My name is Lexi Faber. See you next week.